I'm Steve Smith and I'm a co-founder and CEO of Mentalk. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Baxi, who have partnered with us to tackle the stigma around men's mental health. Baxi is proud to have manufactured in the UK for over 150 years. Their high efficiency boilers come with industry leading warranties, straightforward to install, maintain and of course use. And it's all backed up by Baxi customer support and obviously genuine parts. Baxi also offer installers well-respected product training, award-winning loyalty scheme, and not only are they committed to men's mental health, they're committed to making life with Baxi as easy as possible. Sit back and enjoy the podcast. And I think the best home game for entertainment all around this season came against West Ham with, with Kerr and Brady showing his bits of magic and uh, showing what the future may hold if this young man uh, carries on progressing the way he has done. Rising. As they're doing now, yes! It's Brady! Hi guys, it's Tubes from Soccer AM here. Hope all is well. Um, if you're a fella and you're struggling with mental health, first of all, talk about it. It's really important. Um, I know that with alcohol. As soon as I admitted I had a problem and started getting help, it helped. Um, secondly, uh, get in touch with Mentalk. Mentalk was set up with the aim to let people know it's okay not to be okay. Do it, it will help. And welcome to the We Are Men Talk podcast. Today we are extremely lucky to be uh, with uh, Kieran Brady. How are you doing, Kieran? I'm very well, thank you, Stephen. Thank you for asking me to appear. Uh, thank you for joining us, mate. So, uh, if you don't know, We Are Men Talk is a men's mental health organisation. Um, what we try and do is give men the will to better their futures and tackle some of their demons that they might have. So today, for me, I'm, I'm really interested in you, Kieran, so I'd love to know a little bit about yourself and how you do what you do now. Right, well, I suppose the reason that some people at least may be familiar with me or certainly my name is as a result of my brief dalliance with professional football. I was fortunate enough to play the game professionally between the ages of 16 and 21, it was then I had to prematurely retire as a result of occluded arteries in my lower right leg. And over the ensuing years, I've spent a considerable period working within the field of anti-discrimination. But latterly, that, you know, my passion has changed ever so slightly, certainly in a professional sense, mm. to having the opportunity to work with alcoholics, people who are afflicted with the same illness as I, and who find it increasingly problematic in terms of bringing some sort of peace and stability to their life. And it's something I've done in a voluntary sense as part of my own recovery from alcoholism for a decade or so. But more recently, it's something I've started to do with SP Bespoke in a professional sense. And it's something I'm looking forward to doing in a much more consistent basis once so many of the implications and the deterrents that come as part of the coronavirus. Of course, yeah. Kieran, if you don't mind me asking, when did you realise that you might have had 
you know, some issues with, with alcohol and stuff. Was it during your football or after as a result? Or Well, I'll, I'll answer the two points happily, Steve. When I look back, and it's always easy with the benefit of hindsight, there are certainly signs that I was start, starting to think alcoholically without necessarily drinking alcoholically on a consistent basis. Not long after I left my teens, so that would correspond with the time when I was still a footballer, but still young and naive and certainly unprepared or unwilling to acknowledge that there may be any future issues around my relationship with alcohol. So by the time I went through my 20s and into my early 30s, it was becoming increasingly, you know, it was becoming increasingly evident that my relationship with alcohol was not only becoming more intense, but was becoming more challenging within the context of my personal life, my professional life. And to that end, there is little choice but to at least acknowledge within oneself that there might be some form of problem. Mm. So it was in my mid-30s that I began to realize that I was becoming sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm. And there were very few mornings after that could be classed as being, you know, or very, sorry, very few nights out that were worth what I was suffering in the days after. And I started to experience the extremes of paranoia, depression, anxiety, which in turn led to suicidal ideation and a quite consistent basis. And I was presented on several occasions with little windows of opportunity to try and do something about my relationship with alcohol. I didn't at the time know in any definitive sense that I was suffering from alcoholism. I had to go into recovery to get a better understanding of what alcoholism is and what it isn't. Mm. And that's absolutely critical for people's recovery simply because as an illness, it's subject to so many social myths and misconceptions. And when I was surrounded by people who were capable and competent in imparting wisdom around those issues, then I was left with very little option but to come to the conclusion that I, like them, was suffering from alcoholism. Mm. And, of course, once you accept it, then what you're also informed is that not only is alcoholism an illness, but it's a progressive illness, which means in time it, things will get worse not in terms of the symptoms only, but also the consequences and how they reverberate into the lives of others. And after several relapses, because it's commonplace for alcoholics to acquire this information and then think that they can implement it in a way that will allow them to drink safely again. Mm. But alcohol was a very good teacher to me that it doesn't work like that. And if I was going to persist in some form of relationship with it, then it was going to be a continuous battle and there was only ever going to be one winner and it certainly wasn't going to be me. Mm. So I then resolved in June of 2009 that not only would I again attempt to stop drinking, but I would try to do it in a much more proactive, honest, humble and comprehensive manner 
And as a result of that, I managed to get the services of not only a recovery group, someone that would guide me through the process and program of recovery. And for once in my life, in many respects, I was prepared to concede that I didn't know best and that there was elements to my thinking that some selective few people knew better than I did. And I listened to them. I done what was suggested. And I have now been sober for over 11 years. And in that period, I have aided, assisted, and directly guided hundreds of people in their respective recoveries from alcoholism. Now, just to answer the second part of what you said about the alcoholism possibly being as a result of my premature retirement from professional football, I'm often asked, do you, I think I became an alcoholic or I'm an alcoholic as a result of my dreams being dashed at such a young age. Mm. And whilst there was a period where I might allow myself to dwell in self-pity and answer in the affirmative, when I look at things honestly, the answer is no. I am not an alcoholic because I had to stop playing football at a young age. Yes, it was hurtful. Yes, it was frustrating. Yes, it signaled the end of my childhood aspirations. But ultimately, and what I've learned is that I have been predisposed to being an alcoholic from the moment I was born. And I believe that what life events can do, particularly challenging life events or adversity, can speed up the process by which you will come into collision with the alcoholism. And I believe that that is applicable to myself and my own experiences. Um, so I'm not an alcoholic because I had to stop playing football at 21. And I would like to think that that can be instructive and insightful for others who might be listening or looking on simply because when we look back at periods in our life and we find something that was particularly stressful or traumatic, it is, of course, incumbent upon someone like myself to be sensitive to it and not to sound particularly dismissive. But the likelihood is that other people have went through the same. Mm. And they might even have used alcohol as a coping mechanism, but ultimately they are not alcoholics. Mm. So we can always be sympathetic to people who have went through particularly problematic periods in life. But I still believe that every single alcoholic has been predisposed to it from the moment they were born. Apart from anything, Steve, alcoholism runs in my family. Mm. Thankfully, most of my family members who are alcoholics no longer drink and take others through recovery. And, you know, but from that, you know, it would be disingenuous for me to put forward the notion that my alcoholism is sourced to a life event whilst others are prepared to acknowledge the fact that certain stars aligned, if you like, and were contributory to why they are alcoholics. Equally, I was thinking alcoholically before I had to stop playing football. Okay. So it would, again, be dishonest of me to put forward the idea of, you know, poor me, poor me. Mm. I had to stop playing football because, you know, I had to, 
no, I'd stopped playing football at such a young age. And if that wasn't bad enough, I became an alcoholic, which is nonsensical. In the grand scheme of things, I got to do something I dreamt about as a child for five years. And that's five years more than the overwhelming majority of young boys or young boys and girls in this day and age will ever get the chance to do likewise. It was five years longer than me, mate. <laughs> I was tinkering on the edge. Few were interested, but I didn't yeah. quite have it. I, I want to go back and it permit me to say, I don't know if it's the right thing to say, but you said 11 years sober and I think that's amazing. So, Thank you very much. Thank you. You strike me in the short time I've, I've listened to you and I've, I, you know, Google's a beautiful thing, but you strike me as a really strong-willed guy. I feel like that's in you. So, you know, you, you, you seem very self-aware. And especially mm. when you speak about alcoholism and stuff like that. Also, I think like, I'm interested in like, the cultural side of it. Do you think the alcoholism is, is a cultural thing with, with us in the UK? And yeah, Well, I would say, certainly in respect to both Britain and Ireland, mm. that both nations, if you want to put it in such terms, has a collective drink problem. Mm. Now, it wouldn't necessarily be exclusively around the notion of alcoholism. But certainly the culture that both propels and accommodates binge drinking. Yeah. You know, we, as a collective culture, do tend to give both social and cultural acceptance to the notion of excessive alcohol, binge drinking, etc. And that, of course, leads to no end of problems for the NHS, for the police and you know, other services that would traditionally be quite stretched and could do without the burden of people being, you know, overindulging in a Friday, a Saturday, a Sunday, etc. So to that end, yes, alcoholism itself is an illness that isn't in any respect restricted by borders or boundaries, depending on where you are. It's simply the same regardless. But what the drinking cultures can do in each environment is it can create a greater distance before people start becoming a social pariah, if you like. You know, the, the overwhelming majority of alcoholics in our culture, in our country, do not sleep on park benches and do not meander up the street at 12 o'clock at night making a nuisance of themselves within their neighborhood. The overwhelming majority of alcoholics are people who function normally on a day-to-day -day basis, do, albeit sometimes with a struggle, many of the things that would be expected of a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, etc., etc. They manage to make their work, albeit their output may not always be at its optimum, and I think what that does is it can sometimes change the parameters in terms of people's perception of an alcoholic simply because you will find across society a significant percentage who would be aghast at the idea of a certain individual being suggested as an alcoholic simply because they drop their children off at school every morning, yeah. they get to work every day. And they do all of the things that would be expected in our culture of a traditional father, mother, etc., etc. Um, but 
In terms of our alcohol consumption, which of course includes millions who are not alcoholics and never will be, then I believe that would, there would be strong grounds to put forward the idea or assertion that the nation does have a problem with alcohol. I remember growing up as a, as a child and like my mum, my dad would go out to work, my mum would stay at home, I suppose you call that a typical traditional yeah. like, you know. Yeah, yeah. I always remember my mum would, bottle of wine, it'd be like, it would literally be straight from school, I think. I just look back on that, but I'm really interested on the cultural side of it because even myself as, um, as a young lad up until my late 20s, I would go out to get drunk, mm. you know, until I had my first well, I, child and it changed. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, although it would be applicable, of course, to, to males and females, I think what is more prevalent and prominent within male culture would be the expectation that you can at least be the equal of your peers mm. around a lot of the things that's associated with machismo and masculinity, one of which, of course, would be the consumption of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And that aside, I mean, the, the idea of going out for one or two drinks, even to me, to this day, even with 11 years of sobriety, is complete anatomy. I mean, I just do not understand why anybody would have a relationship with alcohol mm. that involves going to the pub for one or even a couple of glasses of wine in the house. Mm. I mean, my, my wife sometimes pours herself a glass of wine about seven o'clock in an evening. Mm. And I will go out the house to a, rec a recovery meeting and I will sometimes get back about 9.15 to 9.30. And quite often she still has the same glass of wine that she'd poured at 7 o'clock, just as Emmerdale was about to begin. Now, even with over a decade of sobriety, I look at her being able to do that and think to myself, how can you do that? And not only that, why do you want to do it? Because my process around the consumption of alcohol still to this day, and in many ways it reinforces that I am an alcoholic and still am, is why should anybody take two hours to drink one glass of alcohol? In my alcoholic mind, somebody that takes two hours to drink one alcoholic drink they're the ones that are guilty of alcohol abuse. Mm. You know, they shouldn't be allowed to drink alcohol. You know, people that focus too much on things like the taste. You know, for an alcoholic, it was just all about the effect, mm. the release, the fact that it could extricate you from your current reality yeah. and take you to some place where pressures weren't as intense or expectations weren't as high. Mm. And... I will always think that way, regardless of how long a period of sobriety I have. And to that end, I'm glad in one sense because it keeps me from becoming complacent in any way. And apart from anything, I'm always aware that the notion of one drink or two drinks, or even if you put a specifically high amount as a limitation, wouldn't have any interest for me, you know, because that, when I go out or the, when I used to go out and drink, um, 
the one thing you would never do is put a number on how many drinks you were going to have because it was drink to get drunk to get oblivious. Um, yeah. and, that, and that became the, the pattern repeatedly. It's something that's quite prominent in the community and I could speak about many guys that we help. But for me personally, like, um, I don't want to talk too much about me, Kieran, but um, three no. years ago, I lost a successful business. A lot of it was to do really because I think I shut down. I could have continued, but I gave up to the point where I was found because I tried to take my own life. Um, okay. After, obviously, I wasn't very good at that. But after that... <laughs> nice way to put it. <laughs> if you like, you know, after that and, and recovery, if, if you would say, I would sleep three hours a night maximum like literally mm. a maximum so i started to i started to drink because i found that if i had a couple of, of of beers i would obviously i couldn't handle my beers if you would say say that but that would help me sleep for longer and then it become this pattern mm-hmm. and it come on and on and on and on and then till the point where i obviously just thought to myself like this is no good because then i'm not functioning um, I'm not functioning for myself or my family. So obviously I, I cut dead. And then I went the other extreme and I started running. And this is where like, <laughs> the football thing, I should have, I should have done running because I, I, I beasted myself to run, you know, 15 minute 5Ks. Oh. 1502 was my quickest. Um, but it was just interesting that, that pattern with that alcohol and it become like this, this thing. And, and a lot of it really was to mask the pain that I was in really. And I I see that a lot with Mm. guys, you know, just to stop thinking for that moment, they will, they will drink. Yeah. It's so dangerous. Well, it is. I mean, within recovery, we often refer to the periods where an alcoholic's drinking as self-medication rather than drinking for enjoyment because as the illness begins to take hold more and more, then there's little doubt that this inability to deal with life on life's terms represents the source of the problem that exists within the mind of the alcoholic. Mm. And you always get a bewildered reaction when you point out to people that alcoholism at its source is a sober condition. What makes me different from the majority of the population who are not alcoholics affects me in the periods at foundation when I'm not actually consuming alcohol because it's this inability to address life's issues as and when they come along. And then of course, over time we develop this obsession that we don't quite fit in and we don't quite belong. And we are unfortunate enough that we've got some sort of void or some sort of hole in our soul and the alcoholism steadily but surely begins to impress upon us in a comprehensive manner that putting alcohol into a system is one way at least of filling that void or, you know, completing the soul. Mm. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much an illness of perception, but it's devastating, it's demoralizing, it's destabilizing, and, of course, for many, sadly, it's deadly. Yeah. But the great news for people is that it's preventative. Unfortunately, it's not curable, but it's preventative. And recovery, I found, is there not necessarily for people who consider themselves to be 
mentally resilient, but who have the humility to surrender mm. and who have the courage to say, well, it's becoming increasingly aware that alcohol is no longer a friend to me, that it's becoming an adversary. Not only that, it's bringing in collateral damage on a very regular basis. Other people are getting hurt apart from myself in a physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, moral sense. Mm. And to that end, I eventually capitalized on one of the windows of opportunity that opened for me, which was back in June 2009. And... In retrospect, the periods over the course of the last 18 months prior to that, where I had relapsed on a number of occasions, were of huge benefit because they were simply lessons that every time I consumed alcohol, things did not work out the way that I would have liked. And I've heard numerous other alcoholics say that they drank alcohol to make friends and they just ended up making enemies. And they drank alcohol to relieve the symptoms of stress and they just made them more anxious because they couldn't stop once they started. Yeah. And that's what everyone has to look out for. And they have to be honest enough to say, well, mm. when I start drinking, nine times out of 10, do I end up drinking until I'm either drunk or have no more alcohol to consume or have no more funds in order to acquire alcohol? So recovery for me, and I appreciate the comments several moments ago where you alluded to some notion of fortitude within me. But for me, certainly in the first instance, it was about acceptance. It was about surrender. It was about the humility to be able to bring both of those. And it was about an acknowledgement that I was not going to be able to do this on my own. I had tried on several occasions to do it on my own and it was to no avail. And I realized that I would not only have to get the help of others, but I would have to be much more proactive within that. And for whatever reason, fear was a huge part of the momentum that propelled me forward uh, because I didn't want to die. And I didn't want to lose my mind, which looked very much on the horizon. And I was told, I was told by the person who had the biggest influence on me that sobriety would bring me all of the things that alcohol promised but failed to deliver. And when he said this to me, I thought he was being somewhere between arrogant and foolhardy and every single thing he said to me has came true i think comments like that are the comments that really you 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 have to sit with i i would imagine for a while to really let that sink in you you do because so much of recovery is about an emotional and mental transformation and believe it or not alcohol is very rarely mentioned because the idea of recovery from alcoholism is that if we suffer from an illness which at source exists in the periods when we're not drinking, then we have to accept that it's a life problem as much as it is an alcohol issue. And if you ask any alcoholic 
who has recovered or is recovering, and even some alcoholics who still drink, what they will see is that in the periods when an alcoholic's in active alcoholism, mm. alcoholics don't have an alcohol problem. They have an alcohol solution. It's life that is the problem. And of course, that's a way that sh it shouldn't be pursued in any long-term manner. Mm. Um, because there is a solution to the problems that you're encountering and experience in life. And it is about building up that resilience. And it's not only about the period. I know we've spoken a few occasions about my period of sobriety, which is 11 years. But more importantly, the foundation stones upon which those 11 years are based are certainly at present very robust, very strong, and able to withstand life events that have came into my path over the course of the last 11 years. There was a six week period where my uncle died, my wife had a miscarriage, and my father had a massive heart attack. And I learned then about the strength of my sobriety. Mm. And the strength of it was such that not only did I not drink in that period, I didn't even think about drinking. And I didn't even think about, think about drinking. Because I, by then I'd completely embraced this new life, this new concept that whatever trials and tribulations were placed in front of me, my sobriety would be able to withstand it. And I would always be conscious that the best way I can address it, the best way I can cope, the best way I can offer others my support, yeah. many of whom were there for me in my hour and my day of need, was to be sober, to be strong, to be philosophical, and to give yourselves to the service of others as and when required. And it's something I've never ever found enduring. It's something that's always been enjoyable. It's something that I don't see as a chore. I see it as something that reinforces my own sobriety. And I think any alcoholic will tell you that the sobriety and the security of it is the number one priority in their life. And that's not in any way intended to be dismissive about the love and affection of the people around you. Mm. It's simply to highlight the fact that if an alcoholic doesn't have that sobriety, everything else of value and worth will in time begin to disintegrate and deconstruct because that's what I was experiencing towards the end of my drinking. And thankfully, I was able to rebuild a lot of the bridges that had been damaged. The only exception being that with my daughter. And I accept full responsibility for that. As much as I don't accept any moral grandstanding from anybody about the fact I'm an alcoholic, because it's simply not my fault. It's not anyone's fault. But there were certainly periods where I should have been much more aware that I might have a problem with alcohol. And as much as alcoholism is an illness and not a moral failing, I have complete responsibility now for my own recovery. So if I was to go and drink tomorrow, that's on me. Mm -hmm. Nobody else is to blame. I am the one that should be held accountable for the drinking and anything that comes from it. Mm. So, um, and the reason I think that's important to point out, Steve, is because I do get alcoholics that I deal with 
who will ask me, Kieran, is this my fault? And am I morally weak or am I mentally weak? And of course, the answer to all is a resounding no. You know, this is an incredibly strong, devious and insidious illness. And once it gets into the mind of the individual, then so many things that would normally and ordinarily be a priority and a responsibility in life become secondary. And that includes the people that you love, both that you love unconditionally or have grown to love. Um, that's what it does to people. And it, it doesn't respect intellect. It doesn't respect bank balance. It doesn't respect status. No. You know, if alcoholism has you in its crosshairs, that's it. It doesn't matter who you are, what fame you may have, how you perceive yourself, you're going to have to do something about it. I think to go back to, I wonder if this will maybe always been your path, maybe I think differently, but I'll go back to when you said you surrendered and stuff like that. I think within you, Kieran, I don't want to blow your trumpet too much, mate, but I just think you're such a strong guy and maybe this was always your path to help others, perhaps, through your pain. Like. I mean, that, that's, that's something that was impressed upon me from a very early period within my sobriety, mm. that the endurance of my own sobriety would be very much predicated on the willingness to go and help others. Mm. And I suppose... What might be more applicable in my case is that as a former footballer, you will find yourself being asked to speak in media or as I, are, as I do, speak at mental health conferences and the like on my own experiences and how then it can be of benefit for others. And I completely understand the point about the perception of strength. I don't consider myself as somebody mentally resilient and in and, and a lot of respects I, I don't think I am but in terms of being candid about my experiences as an alcoholic but equally as someone who's recovered then I don't have any qualms at all about being public and being open and being as honest as I can be about where it took me and you know that there's there's not a special type of alcoholism for sports persons. You know, I pissed myself. I had liquids and whatever else coming out of each and every orifice that my good wife or girlfriend as she was, was kind and caring and loving enough to go after and clean up. I considered drinking aftershave when I couldn't find alcohol in its traditional or normal form. I done a lot of the things that you would expect from the traditional or typical park bench alcoholic. The only difference was that I didn't actually find myself resident on a park bench or somewhere similar, which would, of course, fit into the stereotype or the generalization that people have around an alcoholic. But I, I was en route to it. Mm. You know, I, I was certainly on that particular path, as any alcoholic is until such time as they can do something about it. Um, because the people who unfortunately and tragically find themselves homeless or in park benches, etc., they weren't always on park benches. You know, some of them were teachers and lawyers and doctors and accountants, you know, in possession of other reputable employment. But unfortunately, some within that particular constituency 
succumb to this idea bec that because they're successful in perhaps a personal and professional life, that they will be able to stop drinking if certain implications emerge as a result. And we sometimes say to people, you know, there is nobody too dumb to recover from alcoholism, but sometimes some people are too smart. And it's to try to get across the message that please don't ever succumb to this idea that because you earn 80,000 pounds a year or more, or because you have a games room attached to your four bedroom detached, or that you and your wife have, you know, two sports cars in the driveway, that you will be immune from this illness and all that it contains in it, uh, within it. It's nonsense. Absol and, it, and not only that, it's dangerous for anybody to start thinking in such terms. It's almost like we're, we're taught to think that materials are the be and all, really, aren't we? Yeah, that's, th that is certainly a very prominent and almost insidious part of our culture. Whether, you know, and it's dressed up within like, the twin evils, if you like, of like, consumerism and capitalism, commercialism. Yeah. That possessions bring contentment. And, you know, I, I'm not, I wouldn't want to decry anyone from what they perceive as things that are important to them and which are contributory to their contentment and give them a sense of fulfillment or satisfaction. But fundamentally, your happiness and your contentment and your peace of mind is sourced to what exists between your ears, not yeah. what exists between walls. One of my real good friends said to me when I had, had my business and I did chase, I just chased money continually. And he said, you need to search for contentment. If you if you if you gain contentment, you'll be a happy man. And it's only now that really I'm starting to yeah stand that. I think I'm I'm a 48 year old middle aged, slightly overweight, diabetic, alcoholic with a receding hairline, and I am a hundred times happier than I ever was when I was quite a handsome 20 year old sports car owning, designer clothes wearing, professional footballer. Mm. And I suppose that the, the axiom that I've seen that perhaps might prove that in a demonstrable manner would be I, this saying that I, I, once, I once met somebody who was so poor that the only thing they had was money. You know, so this idea that money and what comes from it is the exclusive criteria to our contentment is something that is very much steeped in the Western world. Yeah. And unfortunately, people do conform to it. Yeah. And the attitude of keeping up with the Joneses or surpassing them sometimes is to the detriment of people's spiritual well-being. Um, so being an alcoholic is arguably the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I mean, you know, and this, uh, people will probably think, what are you talking about? You've been a footballer, you played internationally, you were very popular with the fans, chanting your name in the thousands when you were a teenager. But happiness is happiness, yeah. right? You know, and it doesn't matter. And sometimes the biggest mistake we make is thinking that we know what's best for us. Mm. And I went through years of that, and it became perfectly evident that, I should let my happiness be steered towards by the wisdom and the knowledge and the humility of others who share this afflicted part of thinking that 
I suffered from for many years, but thankfully no longer suffer from. I love the way you deliver it, Kieran. Thank you very much. It's, just, it's, it's gritty. I like it. It's just no bullshit. Can I ask you about your friendship groups? Yeah, of course. You're out with your friends and stuff like that. How, how do you feel around them? How are they around you? Do you notice a difference or is it just, you know, just normal or well, I, awkward? I, no, ab absolutely not. I mean, the, 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 the social groups that I would interact with or be involved in would have reduced significantly since my drinking days. The reason, and I'm glad you mentioned it, because some people might be listening to this and thinking, well, I've got a drink problem, so on a Saturday night now, I'll just go out with the lads or with the girls, and instead of having 12 pints, I'll just have 12 glasses of orange or 12 Cokes. And if you're going to try to make an attempt at stopping drinking, certainly if it's because you believe you're an alcoholic, you can't just change the drinking. You have to change the thinking. And the best way to do that is to try and withdraw yourself, not so much from your group of friends that might be people of value that you've known, grown up with and place a lot of worth on the terms of your friendship with. But if somebody's an alcoholic, putting themselves in licensed premises or in wet places, as recovery would call them, is foolhardy in the early stages of recovery. And one of the things that recovery can do is it can provide you with quite an accurate guide to who your friends actually are and who were simply your acquaintances yeah. and who you develop relationships with that was basically because of your drinking. Yeah. But I, I'm in licensed premises as and when required. I don't make a point of going to the pub as such. But if my wife and I are away for a weekend and there's a pub quiz on locally, there's nothing would stop me going from it. Yeah. Similarly, if we were going to go out for a meal, I mean, you can't go for a meal really without it. More, more times than not, certainly if it's a restaurant, it's going to sell alcohol. But after about, it depends on the individual, but after about six months, I stopped thinking about alcohol. You know, I was no longer having to resist temptation every day and I would hope that that would be encouraging for people because some people will labor under this idea that if they're going to stop drinking it's going to be a challenge every day for the rest of their life now it may well be that if you try it on your own but if you go through a process of recovery and you manage to come out the other end of that you will have went through a huge spiritual, mental, and emotional displacement, which is for the betterment of you, and where you'll find that you no longer drink, but also you no longer think about drinking. And it is the latter part that's every bit is as important as the abstinence itself. Because I've dealt with families who, if I had put forward the idea, they would have happily chained their loved one up to a radiator mm. and given them three square meals a day just to keep them distant from alcohol. But that's not recovery. No. That's, that's imprisoning someone physically to try to replace the fact that for many years they've been imprisoned mentally. Mm. Chained to this idea that alcohol has something to offer them when all it tends to offer is chaos and disharmony. Um, you know, 
my objective when I'm working with someone is not to simply make them someone who no longer drinks alcohol, because that arguably is the easy part. If you had the consent of them and their family, you know, you could just make them physically incapable. But I want someone to be confident, be at peace with themselves and the world around them, be capable, fulfill the potential that they undoubtedly have as an individual, because an alcoholic's not a bad person trying to become good, they're a sick person trying to get better. Yeah. But they have to acknowledge within the illness itself, they do things that hurt and harm people. Mm. Primarily the people that love them dearly and unconditionally. So I always want to make sure that when I'm working with someone, that by the time we've went through the process of quite intense one-on-one therapy, that at the end of it, I could say to them, come on, we'll go for a drink now. And they would say, no, Kian, I don't don't need a drink. You know, I, I, I feel... I can cope with whatever life has in store for me using the strength that I've gained through this sobriety. And it's incredibly heartening when you are the recipient of someone's gratitude for both saving their life and giving them a life that they simply could never have envisaged. And it's something I hope I'll be doing for a long, long time to come. It sounds quite empowering, to be honest. Before we talk about what you do now, even though you've just given a snippet. If can we go back and, and when you was when you were suffering, you said about suicide ideology. Was that due to the alcohol, or was that due to relationships that had broke down? And I, I, I would say that largely it was as a result of my alcoholism and at times the use of illegal substances, which. I didn't have any addiction problems with, but which I used because they're very good at allowing you to continue drinking, certainly if you're using stimulants. So I believe that the soullessness that represents the source of alcoholism, the consumption of alcohol itself and the use of these substances were all contributory to those feelings that you, you didn't have anything to contribute to your family, to your society, etc. Um, but of course, once I stopped drinking, any notions to that end simply diminished. And that, of course, I would love to think can be a catalyst for people to take on board and absorb and think, well, I drink a hell of a lot and I do experience low moods or depressive thoughts or suicidal ideas. So should I not at least consider the prospect of some people might think I'll reduce my alcohol intake, which may of course be helpful, but the key point is to look out for whether you're capable of reducing it and reducing it over a sustained period. Because if you're not, then there's a very strong likelihood that you are an alcoholic. Um, so the, the suicidal thinking, um, was very much, I believe, sourced to to the alcoholism and all that existed within it. Would you think to October in some of my friendship group, they they will stop for a month because it's the you know the raising money or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And then it comes to November and then they're out every single night. Well, that's. I mean, I I think depending on the individual, 
you know, because some people will obviously do it for charity. Some people will do it for the benefit of others. And that, of course, is admirable. It's certainly not something that would be... It, I mean, it could be... It could act as a platform for someone to hopefully feel the benefits of um, 30 days without alcohol and think, well, I like the way I feel now. I'm going to continue it. Yeah. But... I mean, there's two points to it. First of all, I've never met an alcoholic yet who's recovering, whose recovery was brought about by October or dry January. Alcoholism doesn't exist in a seasonal manner. People's tendency to give every attempt to stop drinking will come when the alcoholism is beating them up emotionally, spiritually, mentally, sometimes physically. And that, of course, is applicable whether it's the beginning of October or the beginning of March, the beginning of April, etc. Um, the, the second point about it would be, you know, notions such as Stocktober and Dry January very much validate the idea that Britain has a drink problem because I don't know if other countries around the world feel the need to have a month of complete abstinence mm. from alcohol. And I know from speaking to people that have came here for a period, they may have lived here or been here at university, they can't believe the way the collective we drink alcohol, you know, particularly on a weekend evening, yeah. where, as you touched upon, Steve, and I'm conscious of it, and millions of others are, the intention seems to be to go out and drink as much as you can. And... Of course, people will always try to underpin that with the idea that they'll have the great night or the enjoyable night they desire. But they become quite dismissive of the notion that it can put yourself in dangerous positions or it can lead you into environments that may prove troublesome, or problematic or violent. Um, so there's, within that social and cultural acceptance, sadly is the reality that... Um, you know, people get injured, people get seriously hurt, people die. You know, and, and a huge number of people who die as a result of alcohol are not alcoholics. You know, the people that get, that, you know, the people that get drunk and fell downstairs and hit their head in a way that's resulted in tragedy, people that leave chip pans on, and, you know, all of these things. Yeah. Uh, but it's all a product in many respects of that cultural acceptance to drunkenness. Yeah. Um, and, and that's without getting into the fact that, um, you know, people for, you know, people, for example, with um, predatory pred predilections, you know, maybe in a town centre on a Saturday night waiting for a woman to be on her own who's under the influence of alcohol and is more incapable of defending themselves or mm. raising an alarm, as it were. So um, it, it does cause a huge amount of problems. But I would also emphasize the point that even as an alcoholic, I do not have any hostility towards people drinking alcohol. You know, if you can go out and have a respectful relationship with alcohol, it's very good. You know, it can be good at adding to any celebratory emotions. It can temporarily take you away from the pressures and stresses of everyday life. And to that end, good luck to you. You know, go and enjoy the odd glass of wine or a couple of pints with your pals. Um, but that luxury, if you want to refer to it as such, is something that is not afforded to me. 
And if I'm being brutally honest, it never really was because I still can't fathom the idea of people going out to a pub and having one or two drinks and then not craving any more. Yeah. You know, I could convince myself or convince my wife at times that I was only going up to the pub for a couple, you know, but my couple was a couple of days, yeah. you know, um, or occasionally a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, you know, so um, I'm perfectly content without it. I love what I do in terms of helping people to recover. I mean, I've said before, you know, scoring goals in front of thousands of people was a fantastic feeling. But when you have somebody phone you or even come up to you in person because you've been with them several days previous and they're thanking you because you've given them life or in some occasions I've talked people down from a bridge or you've given somebody, their, you've given a wife and children, their father and husband back. I mean, that blows the goals out of the water. You know, it, it gives you a sense of worth that is unimaginable and indescribable and incomprehensible considering I was somebody that back in June 2009 was going to drink aftershave, yeah. you know, and now you become the person that is a go-to person and people think you've got something, you know, like very, very good to offer and, um, you know, you can, you can help bring about that sobriety and that recovery for both an individual and their family. At the end of the day though, Kieran, you've lived it firsthand. So I think yeah. someone's coming to you for, for help, if you like, I think uh, you're gonna you're gonna listen, you know, like at the end of the day. Like that's 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 quite it's really dark, you know, like you're gonna drink aftershave and things like that. Like that's well that's Steve, that when I when I went into recovery or back into recovery, I thought this was an incredible story. And trust me, thinking about drinking aftershave is tame compared to some of the things that people not only thought about, but actually have done. Yeah. You know, I've, lots of alcoholics have considered drinking. And it's not, it's not, it's because, the, it's because the aftershave in that moment will help change the way they feel. Mm. You know, that's what it's all about, changing the way we feel. And when I was considering drinking aftershave, I don't mean I was starting a night out and thinking about drinking aftershave. This was after about 10 days solid drinking and I was rough and I was suicidal and I just needed something to change the way I felt for an hour or two or three or four hours until I could go to the off license and get alcohol mm. normally. Um, but it definitely done something to me in terms of you, you know, like hammering home that this is where my relationship with alcohol had now taken me. Mm. And as, as, much, as much as I was suicidal, I mean, I don't know the exact definition of suicidal, but I, I was suicidal, but I didn't want to die. You know, but I, I, I just had the feelings that um, I, I could do this, um, but I... I there was something deep down in me didn't want to die, you know, and thankfully I set about recovery again. And as I said, I was much more proactive and willing to listen. Yeah. I became as willing to listen as the dying can be. And, you know, thankfully I've, I've never looked back. Fair play to you, mate.
fair play to you. Thank you. Let's talk about what you do now then, Kieran, obviously. So uh, when you, when you, after recovery, you volunteered, you said? Is that right? Well, I, I mean, that would be an erroneous way of putting it. It's not so much that I volunteered, because that makes it sound much more admir admirable than it probably is. When I went to get help, I was told that once I was in a better frame of mind and had went through a period of recovery, that the maintenance of my own recovery was dependent on me, given my time, given my experience and wisdom, to be of benefit for others. And that's what I've done. So I wouldn't say that it's voluntary in the traditional sense, because there are a lot of people who do a lot of things in a voluntary manner, and it's purely altruistic. And I've got the greatest respect for them. And as much as people might look upon me as doing something similar, the reward for me was that it reinforces my own sobriety and continues to do that to this day. So people will always thank me. And I always make the point to them that I understand their gratitude, their appreciation. But don't think for one second that I'm not getting anything from it. Because... Every time somebody asks me to help them go through recovery, it maintains and secures and reinforces my own. You know, so um, that's, that's, that's like the whole ethos, if you like, of recovery. And I'm very fortunate that it's something I enjoy doing rather than endure. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't quite appreciate the telephone calls that come at four o'clock in the morning from some drunk guy, you know, yeah. bemoaning the world around them. Um, you know, I'm not some saint, but but it's still something by and large that you enjoy. And, you know, if you're saving somebody's life and you're, give, you're giving life and creating a life that they couldn't have imagined, I mean, what's, what's not to enjoy? Sound like you're a humble guy, mate. Ah, nah. I'm, uh, my wife would disagree with you wholeheartedly on that, as would a few <laughs> others, I'm sure. Um, but that's, it's just the, um, that's just the way it is. It's the way I've been taught. Yeah, I think it's a great way to look at it, to be fair, Kieran. And I think the same for me. I didn't, I didn't genuinely see a way out of, of the pain, if you like. I think I'm on my second attempt of trying to take my life. I knew that was enough and I needed help. Um, and realistically, I think, you know, I'd had therapy and I tried medication, medication didn't work, therapy did to a degree, but I think when I kind of realised that I had a bit of a story and I could, um, I could maybe open up and just be raw about it if you like, you know, and then people approach you, for me to be able to maybe help others now to maybe not go through the things that I have or if they are, help them, Brilliant, that's, done a, that's done a lot for me. Yeah, like so, I understand. I do understand it, and um, it's a great achievement, really. And, it's it, and I think give you. I, I think that when you consider what might be regarded as male culture, and certain elements attached to it, it's great to see men speaking about their experiences with mental health problems, mm. and you know. The, the courage within that, of course, is at least partly owing to the fact that there's this long-standing notion of, you know, manhood at its finest mm. through people that are fearless and people that don't show their feelings. 
and people that can be looked up to as a proper man, whatever that may be. I don't think anybody ever tried to put some sort of demonstration to it. But ultimately, you know, we have to try and encourage and empower people to use those three different words that emerge from time to time, whether it's I need help, I am scared, I am fearful. You know, we have to really try to emphasize time and again to people that there's absolutely nothing wrong. You know, how, how can anyone control the machinations of the mind, even more so when you're putting substances and liquids into it, which can distort it in such a huge way? Yeah. Um, and, and to that end, I think working in anti-discrimination has helped me because I try as best as possible to be as gender neutral in a whole host of areas. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, that's not to say that it's, it's easy as such for women to be open about their emotions. But I think womanhood as such doesn't tend to suffer from the same notions of um, mental, strength, mental strength being aligned with physical prowess. Mm -hmm. You know, this, you know, the, the, no, the notion of manhood that exists within some minds is that it's all about your prowess from the boardroom to the bedroom. You know, that you go out, you make money, you have a few drinks with your pals, you might drink a lot, and then, you know, you're, you're this successful stallion, you know, sowing his wild oats from woman to woman. Sort of thing. I mean, it's real caveman mentality, yeah, but it's dangerous. Yeah. You know, it's, it's dangerous. It's contributory to the guy who might think a lot of himself, mm. but who's gone through a difficult period, both emotionally and mentally, and whose reluctance to come forward with how he's feeling is very much predicated on how he thinks his pals and his peers view him. Yeah. Well, I can't go and acknowledge my feelings because the lads will think I'm this, you know, simply because he's, he, he thinks that they think that he's the, he's the alpha male or, or one of the alpha males. Um, and, you know, if people can say they've got a broken foot, a broken leg, a broken arm, a broken hip. Is it that much of a stretch to say that they might have fractured their mind? Yeah. You know, really, um, and I've got no qualms about saying, apart from anything, a lot of the things that I come into my mind, and I dare say it's applicable to you, Steve, and many others, you know, it's a completely involuntary. You know, we don't have any control of some. I wish I didn't think about some things that come into my mind. Yeah. Um, but that's just, I, I accept it. You know, a lot of my attitude now is around acceptance. Yeah. And as much as it can be difficult to implement it definitively, I try to think upon each day and each situation and each scenario that presents itself mm. as being the way it's intended to be at that particular moment. Mm -hmm. And I just try to make sure that my thoughts, words, and actions don't adversely impact upon others. Of course, as a human being, we've got our shortcomings and defects, and we're always likely to interact with someone in a way that they don't find welcoming or acceptable, and it's incumbent upon me then to try and show contrition if I've been in the wrong or been insensitive. Um, and it's, it's a fantastic way to live. You know, it, it really is. It's been incredibly rewarding in the most pure 
in spiritually beneficial manner. And I say spiritually rather than religious. I'm not really religious, right. but just in terms of making a person more wholesome and more fulfilled, more valued amongst their community, as it were. Um, it's just it's just all the polar opposites to what comes with alcoholism. I know people's perception of alcoholism, understandably so, is that it's a person that drinks far too much or can't stop drinking once they start. And of course, that's perfectly valid. But alcoholics, as the illness begins to take hold more and more, they're not just big drinkers. They're lying, deceitful, cheating, manipulative, persuasive, um, neurotic, soulless. Oh, I mean, and the great thing about recovery from alcoholism is you become the polar opposite of all of those. Rather than just not drinking, when that just means you're not drinking, but you still have a lot of those other issues that are defective within you and detrimental to your relationships with people around you. Um, so long, long may it continue. And um, I just hope that so many of the norms that exist within society, particularly for males, can be eroded and eventually eradicated in time because nobody sh there's there's something wrong with a society if people's perception of it is that it's frowned upon to say i need help yeah you know there really is i think slowly slowly changing i think there's still a hell of a lot of work to do i'm a big advocate that um to teach our our youngers and the teenagers we need to teach them the way forward really yeah i'm a massive massive fan of being present in the moments and i think a lot of us are not but i have a yeah. real bugbear just for argument's sake if i go out to meet a friend that i've not seen for a while and straight away phone's on the table that for me you're not present in the moment yeah yeah got you if we yeah. can really be present in the moment with our friends with our families with strangers, whoever that is, and you're having that conversation, you don't know that that person might turn around and say to you, do you know what? I'm struggling. Yeah. It's happened to me just by being present. Uh -huh. think little things that we can change together. That's actually yeah. really, it's simple, Kieran. It is, yeah. that's, a, that's a fantastic way of looking at it that, you know, if, if you are waiting for that phone to ring, or certainly if you're going on and looking at social media and the like, when you're in company, yeah. that, you're distant. You, you know, you might be sitting only one foot away from the person, yeah. but it's much more important to be mentally aligned, you know, and, you know, and, and one of the reasons I'm so open and candid about my experiences is that my wife will sometimes come in from work and she'll say, Kieran, one of the women at work's brother, John, is really bad with a drink. Will you give him a call? You know, so... I've made myself available and accessible to anyone and everyone, as it were, who might have a cousin they're concerned about, or they might have a parent whose drinking has become a worry over recent times. And I'll still continue to do that in my, you know, my personal life and the recovery of others. Um, but I'm really looking forward to to working more with with SP Bespoke. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I feel very confident in what I'm doing because I was headhunted to do it rather than me going through an application process. And I like the idea of going out to people's houses 
because some people are reluctant to go into what they see as public settings or public places mm. to stop their drinking. You know, they've got concerns about reputational damage, bumping into somebody from their neighbourhood. So people get us to go into their homes and we work with them. And they appreciate the fact that the people that are coming to speak with them are alcoholics, mm. you know, because the great thing about that is that we are the last people that could be judgmental about some of the things they might have said and done, because in all likelihood, myself and others that would be with me have probably done the exact same things. The only difference being we done it further back in time. But alcoholism and recovery from it, although you speak in English to the people you're communicating with, is almost like a mental language that the sufferers only understand or understand fully. Mm. And that's why it works so well because a lot of alcoholics entertain or encounter periods where they think they're the only person in the world that thinks like this. Yeah. And see when you're sitting opposite somebody who says or speaks about the sense of euphoria, elation and relief at one minute to 10 when you walk around in a dark November rainy night and the off-license light is still on, there's that sense of indescribable emotions that you've got your medicine to get through the night. And by that stage, it is medicine, yeah. you know, because life, life's the problem and alcohol is the solution, which is a horrible way to live and a horrible way to think. Great. And we're there to try and offer people a way out from it. I think as well that people like yourself going in who has who's lived through it and survived and is now helping others, I think there's a lot to be said for... I'm, I'm not a big fan of telling someone how they should feel. But yeah, of course, yeah. You could, you could feel like this. This yeah, is yeah. how I felt at this uh -huh. point. I think people are going to really resonate with that more so than someone telling you at this stage you should be here, which I think yeah. sometimes I mean, is a mistake. Yeah, because the thing is, if you accept it as an illness and people accept the recovery part or the therapeutic element, then, I mean, if you, let me, let me put it this way, Steve. You, you will, you know, like anyone that's had medication, you get, your med you get your prescription from the doctor or you go to the chemist, you open it up and quite often on the literature, it will tell you about the medication, what it's for, what it's designed to do, etc. But then it will also say one in a thousand people will experience this side effect. And then it comes down to one in a hundred, one in 50, one in 10, etc., etc. And recovery from alcoholism is no different. A lot of the, what you may call side effects of therapy and recovery exist within the mind of the alcoholic. They're nothing to be fearful of. In fact, some people would probably be a little bit surprised at what they are. One of the things that people will often experience, not every alcoholic, is drinking dreams. They will have a disproportionate number of dreams when they go to bed each night that in the dream they're drinking alcohol, but they're drinking alcohol as a recovering alcoholic and they become all panicky. And sometimes when you wake up, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of occasions where I've woken up in the last year going, oh, I've blown my sobriety. And then I realized, no, it was, it was just a dream. Um, 
And also another one that is commonplace for recovering alcoholics in recovery is sugar cravings. You know, so a lot of alcoholics, they start to get well mentally. They think, well, because I've stopped drinking now, I'll probably lose weight. So everything's great. And about, <laughs> about three months later, they put on two stone because yes. they don't appreciate that their body had become so accustomed to the sugar through the alcohol. And instead now, the alcohol's not an option. So you, they're, they're going to the shop and spending three quid on chocolate each night and things like that. Yeah. But ultimately, the most important thing is that mentally and emotionally and spiritually, they're on the right path. 100% I agree with that. I think for anyone that's listening, what would be a word of advice if they're actually, you know, if they're starting to think actually what Kieran's telling me, I'm struggling with that. What, what would be your advice to... First of all, be honest about your alcohol consumption. Be honest to assess whether when you start drinking, do you drink until you basically can't drink anymore or you run out of alcohol or run out of money, etc. If that happens nine times out of ten, then you have to at least consider the prospect that there's a problem. I would also consider the periods when you're not drinking how much you think about alcohol, how much you may obsess over it, and if you develop strategies to drink alcohol. And what I mean by that is some people will um, utilize different ways that they either hide from the partner how much they're drinking or the fact they've been drinking. You know, so you, you need to look at the periods when you're drinking, whether you invariably end up in some state of drunkenness. You also need to consider how happy you can be in your life without alcohol over a prolonged period. You know, some people might go five days or even five weeks without a drink. Everything's okay. But then before they know it, they're back drinking again. Before they know it, it's the following morning and they're thinking, how did that happen? I didn't even intend to drink when I woke up yesterday. Um, and of course, if, if that is the reality for people, do not be afraid to go and get help. Um, you know, there's, there's local agencies within communities. Um, but for the people that would like home-based rehab and therapy and intervention before things get worse, because trust me, Steve, think, I don't care who it is that's watching thinking things can't get worse. They can get worse. Yeah. They can always get worse. Um, and certainly SP Bespoke prides itself on intervention. You know, the, the two partners who run it, as well as myself as one of their on-call consultants, are all alcoholics who went to the depths of despair. Mm. And that's what motivates us to try and make sure that others don't have to descend as far as what we did. Um, so that's, that's the... That, that would be the advice, mate. That would be the advice. But you can... www.sp, S for Stephen, P for Paul, bespoke.com is where you can find out what we can offer. You've done this before, mate. I was just about to pull you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Kieran, it, I genuinely, it's been a true pleasure. I, I say that, I genuinely mean it. Thank you so much for your time. And we want to wish you all the best and keep up the fantastic work. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Men Talk podcast. 
Want to feature on future shows? Contact the team at info at mentalk.online.